Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of Jude. Jude, second to last entry in the New Testament. The short letter, but a message that endures uh, for the church in every generation. So here's Jude, a half-brother of Jesus, unbelieving brother who now calls Jesus his master. And he's writing to you, by the way. He's writing to me. Uh, those who have been loved by God the Father, called from you know, the very uh, foundation of the world by His grace, kept for eternity uh, in the Lord Jesus. Uh, when you hear that, that, that should get your attention. It's got my attention. It sort of tunes us in to what Jude is uh, about to tell us. Uh, so this morning we're going to move into the main body of this letter, uh, verses 3 and 4. And as I mentioned last week, we're going to start with verse 1 and and just add additional verses to our reading. So here's Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is God's holy, enduring Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for the authority of Your Word, the power of Your Word. May we acknowledge that in these moments, that though all else passes away, it is Your Word that endures. And so we ask Your help now as we consider this Word and how to understand it and apply it to our own lives. It is You, Holy Spirit, who must accomplish the working of Your Word. And so we trust You to do that in these moments. Lord, make us attentive. Speak faithfully through your servants. And may the meditation of our hearts, the words of my mouth, be pleasing to you, O Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Chamber of Parliament was quiet except for the voice of one man. And Lord Tarleton was speaking quite fervently and eloquently, um, waxing eloquent about England as the economic envy of the nations and how important the slave trade was as a part of that. How important the slave ships were and the the prosperity of the people of England, even to the slaves themselves. And across from Lord Tarleton and the Chamber of Parliament sat a young MP named William Wilberforce, quiet with the rest of them, but you could see his eyes shifting, growing more and more unsettled. And so once this member of parliament sat down, sort of took a breath after speaking, it was quiet, no one else spoke, and so Wilberforce put his hands on his knees, sort of dropped his chin, and stood. Everyone else was quiet, but he could not stomach what he was hearing any longer, and so he stood those who had no voice of their own uh, to speak. Maybe not what he intended to do that particular afternoon um, in the chamber, but he stood. And sometimes we have to stand and say things that we never intend to say. 
I wonder if it would have been easier for Jude to sort of sit quietly in the chamber and write about a common faith and salvation. The church may have even expected something like that from Jude. But Jude's hand is forced, as it were, to, to pen something else. He had to take a stand, you know, push back against what it is he was hearing. And I think of so many of the great writings in the church, whether it's books or letters, really have come about, never intended to be written by their authors. But they're compelled to take a stand, to say something. I'm reading a book right now by J. Gresham Machen called Christianity and Liberalism, really a great example of this. Machen was a professor of New Testament at Princeton Seminary, back when Princeton was still Bible-believing and Orthodox, and starting um, what we know of as, as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, as a denomination, starting Westminster Seminary. Never did he set out to write a book about the onslaught of liberalism in the church. But the times compelled him to stand. Uh, we're grateful that he did that. And so Jude gives the purpose for this letter and what's, what's before us here in these verses. And the rest of the letter is actually supporting uh, what we find here. Uh, an appeal and the reason for the appeal. Again, not what he had in mind at first. Probably started writing another letter. Uh, but he's compelled to change uh, direction. So in verse 3 is the appeal, contend for the faith, while verse 4 is the reason behind that. A challenge to the faith. Contend for the faith. Challenge to uh, the faith. I think like the other apostles, particularly John, uh, we hear of Jude's endearment to the church. Uh, these are his loved ones. He has a great appreciation for them. as united uh, in Christ. No doubt is going to affect how he writes this letter. He wants to share with them about Jesus, about their their common faith, what it is they can share and celebrate about Jesus. Jude doesn't have anything, you know, extraordinary experiences or something extraordinary that separates him from the others in the church. Um, they share in the mercy of God and the hope in Christ. But that's going to have to wait. Uh, now he writes an appeal to the church. So, you know, picture a military commander here and the general in front of his troops. The soldiers are hesitating. Maybe they're falling back. Maybe they're fearful. And so the leader spurs them on with a really powerful word. He appeals to them. You must keep going. In this case, it's Jude saying, you must contend for the faith. That's his appeal. This, this, this contending, it's, it's more than just, oh yeah, that's true. It's more than just a standing for the faith. It is, it is fighting for it. There's a struggle here, an exertion on behalf of the faith. Maybe, maybe you caught some of the college football championship this last early last week. You know, you watch that game, those players are exerting themselves. They are fighting for every point. You know, two of the most dynamic offenses on the gridiron. Exerting themselves. Paul, Paul keeps a, a similar language of this struggle. 2 Timothy 4, when he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's a struggle. It's going to take all you have to contend for the faith. Important to see here what Jude means by faith. That seems straightforward enough. Contend for the faith. My faith, your faith. 
We can talk about our uh, faith in different ways, our faith experience. But the way Jude completes the sentence actually helps us understand this. It, the faith in this case is a direct object. It's a thing that has been given or entrusted to the church by those who have gone before. It's a body of truth, content that has been handed down. Some of you have been you know, in the receiving end or entrusted with this type of delivery. Maybe it's a, an article of clothing or something you have in your kitchen or a book that's been handed down to you entrusted to you uh, from one generation to the next. We have a, a fun little tradition in our home on Christmas morning. Usually the first thing that our kids will do on Christmas morning after breakfast, it's the first thing, is they will find the Christmas pickle. We have this pickle ornament that I will hide in the green of the tree and the, the one who finds the pickle gets to give the first gift of Christmas. And I, I don't know if it's German tradition or just legend, but... Um, but someday, this pickle ornament will be given to one of the kids. And it will be up to them. They'll be entrusted with it whether they want to carry on this tradition or not. The faith has been entrusted. It's been delivered once for all. So from, at least from Jude's perspective, these convictions of the church, this faith could be referenced. It could be pointed to and to say, yes, that's what we believe. That is true. And so, we don't ignore our, our faith experience, um, how the Spirit works, how and when the Spirit works in our hearts and moves us as we seek to obey the Lord, but if the church is going to contend for the faith, then it has to know what it is and where to find it. And let's give praise to God, because the faith, once for all, entrusted to the saints is not far. It's in the very living Word of God that most of you have in your laps right now. Here's how the British pastor Dick Lucas put it. He said, In Jude, the Christian faith is already in existence as a settled and final body of saving truths. So it's not so much the, the trusting God part of our faith that Jude has in mind here, but that body of truth, the teaching that must be contended for. Apostle Paul does something very similar. Uh, to Jude here in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, he shares this body of teaching that is now, now belongs to the church, has been delivered by the apostles. So see if you can hear the similarity between Jude's appeal and uh, what Paul says here. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So faith once delivered. Truth that must be believed. So I don't think we have to look very hard, don't have to look very deep to bring this uh, closer to home for us. If we're going to contend for something, we need to know what we're contending for. We need to know the truths that support our faith. So I want you to take stock of that for a moment. How are you going to know the truths of the faith that you claim? How are you going to know what to contend for? 
Let's be honest, if we think an hour on Sunday morning and that just once in a while is sufficient, then we're on shaky ground. It'll be much easier to, to draw back, to compromise, or even flee the truth altogether. So, so we, need to, we need to hear, we need to sing the truth of God's Word in our worship. But, but our faith and the, the truth that feeds our faith comes through you know, other Bible studies, through time in prayer, time with one another, small group discussions, maybe one-on-one over, over coffee or a lunchtime. These all cultivate and grow our faith. Um, you know, I don't want to imply here that, that you need to know every you know, doctrinal formula that the church has ever hashed out in order to be faithful or to contend for the faith. But we need to remember that, just like we read in Paul, that the gospel itself has involves specific doctrines that must be confessed. This is why we learn certain creeds. Why we'll use some creeds in our worship, like the Apostles' Creed. Why we recite them so we know what we believe, what the Bible teaches, what we're contending for. Here's another quote by J. Gresham Machen. I mentioned earlier, I think he gets at the point here a little more succinctly. He says this, Christian experience is a fair flower and should be prized as a gift of God. Okay, let me read that again for Presbyterians. Christian experience is a fair flower and should be prized as a gift of God. But cut it from its root in the blessed book and it soon withers away and dies. Charismatics, time to listen there. Let me, let me, let me listen. read it all again. Christian experience is a fair flower and should be prized as a gift of God. But cut it from its root in the blessed book and it soon withers away and dies. A faith once for all delivered to the saints. Trinity Fellowship, that the church today is in desperate need of contenders. Those who are willing to stand Fight for the truth of God's Word because we know it is being undermined and attacked at every turn. Um, thinking of our men's Bible study this last week, talking about the actions of Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 12. It just says he followed the devices of his own heart. Rebellion against God. He exchanged the truth, reality according to God's design for a lie. His own reality. What, that, what, what power and worship should look like and only led to further sin and destruction. But the king himself, Jesus, he was tempted to an alternate reality and God's intention for him. Jesus, take care of yourself first. Just worship me, Satan whispers. But the living word himself contends, fights back with the right handling and proper use of what's entrusted to Him. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God has graciously given us His Word. The Word of truth. And if we're going to to walk and step with that truth, align with reality, then we must walk with Jesus. Heed the Spirit of Christ in us. The Spirit of truth in us. Let me say a word to you, students, covenant children. Will you be contenders of the faith? Will you hold on to Christ? 
share the hope of the Lord Jesus when it is not at all popular in any circle really to do that? Is spending time in God's Word, is that a priority for you? Learning of the things of God and thinking about them. Sometimes our, our, our schedule, the, the school schedule, and you put the extracurriculars on top of that, and then a little bit of play, and what's left? You know, and time in God's Word is sort of uh, in the back burner. Um, and here's where I hear the parents saying, I hope they're listening. I hope they're listening. Uh, so I have to say to our, our parents and our grandparents and mentors, I hope you're listening. They're watching you. They're watching what is important to you, what it is you value, how you are prioritizing your time. So if time in God's Word as a, as a family, if time praying together as a family, if time talking through the issues around us through a biblical lens is scarce in your home or non-existent, then what can you expect as they get older? I mean, we entrust the hearts of our, our children to God. He's the one who leads them. He's the one who guides them. He cares for them. But if they do not see us, if they do not see parents or the church striving, contending for the faith, then we cannot be surprised as they wander, veer off into the broad road of destruction. They need those. Our children, our students need those who will stand with them on the ancient paths, lead them on the narrow road to life, contend for the place, uh, for the faith. So, hear the encouragement, hear the, you know, the admonition in this. The church can't do this for you. Um, it can help you, and it should help you. Church is central to our spiritual formation at any age. But what is learned and reinforced here must be cultivated in the home. So, the faith entrusted to the church, a big help here in identifying the intruders, these false teachers who are sneaking in and, and deceiving the church. And that's where we go in verse 4. Why does the church need to contend for the faith? Because it's being challenged, being spoken against. Specifically, um, it's being uh, uprooted by the actions of certain people. Isn't it interesting? Jude really doesn't even give them the dignity of naming them. He just says certain people. Uh, ungodly people who have crept in unnoticed. Galatians 2, Paul describes those who are creeping in. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So, so they look legit. They look like honest teachers. Honest church members. Embedded in the church. For those of you who are fans of the Marvel movie universe, this is Hydra. The Hydra agents who have been working for decades within S.H.I.E.L.D. to reap war and take power and control. They're sneaky. They've crept in unnoticed by those within the church. But even though they're unnoticed, they're not unknown. Did you catch that? Jude says their condemnation was, was prescripted. It was written about long ago. And some understand that as, as being written about in God's book of judgment from long ago. I think there's a good argument that it's reference to the prophecies of old that we find in the Scriptures. The fact that Jude is going to sort of pile on these examples 
uh, of judgment really helps in, in supporting that understanding. But something I don't want us to miss here, and that is the comfort that we see in verse 4. There's actually an assurance here. An assurance to us uh, as those in the church. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, unnoticed by the church, but not unnoticed by God. He knows their hearts. He knows the abuse of His grace that's taking place. And that's something that will not stand. Evil will not prevail. So the, the wickedness of those who pretend or presume to do good, that's ultimately going to fail. They're going to be judged by a just God. Listen to the, the wisdom of Proverbs 16. It's easy to get frustrated, despair of the, the apparent success of the wicked, the lifestyle of the ungodly. It says, All the ways of man of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Do not be despaired, do not be troubled. The reward for wickedness and sin is very short-lived. So they're already facing judgment as enemies of God. Why? Because they're twisting God's grace. They're changing His grace into something that it's not. Um, Trying to meet their own sinful desires. So they're using grace to justify their actions. A license for their own sexual sin. I was thinking of Cardinal Richelieu in the story of the Three Musketeers. Um, Richelieu is the most trusted spiritual advisor to the king. He's a trusted political advisor. Um, But what he really wants is the throne for himself and the king's young bride for himself. And so he makes plenty of subtle and not so subtle advances. uh, Waving his cross while he indifferently uh, exercises his lusts. So here's the thought process behind what's happening here in this license. If our salvation is by the grace of God, it's not by our works, then our our works, our deeds, those decisions have no ultimate bearing on eternity. So, you know, have a good time. Live it up. God's grace has you you covered for that final day of judgment. So, you know, that that moral law is not, not really binding. Don't worry about that. Go ahead and follow the devices of your heart. Paul speaks directly to this license in Romans 6. We want to know more of God's grace. Shouldn't we just keep sinning? And His grace is going to abound all the more to us. The apostle says, no, you don't understand grace at all. If you are united to Christ, then you have died to sin. And now walk in newness of life. So it's a new life of obedience. That's the result of really grasping grace. As one commentator put it, grace is easily misunderstood by those who would abuse it. So by living in this way, changing the grace of God into something it's not, they're they're saying no to Jesus Christ. They're denying their only master in Jesus, following a different master undoubtedly themselves. And that they could be rejecting Christ by what they're teaching. But Jude's focus is more on their loose living. Um, 
You know, I, we all know well that you can say no without actually saying no. Um, we had a couple of toddlers in our home staying with us last weekend again. It was great. It's been a while for us um, in that way. Um, two very smart two- and three-year-olds, and they said a lot of things very loudly, but they didn't have to say anything to deny the instructions and, yes, the grace of their parents. Um, it just took their looks, just took their actions that spoke volumes. In Titus 1, the apostle says of the unbelieving, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. As we contend for the faith, we certainly do so with our words, but how much more with our actions, the life choices that we make. So even as Jude gives the warning here, points out these certain people, it has a way of unmasking our own presumption. I mean, this is happening within the church. Let's not forget this. Not just out there, we'll just be on guard, put up the shields. This is happening in the church. Um, We can't dismiss this as someone else without looking in the mirror. Where are we tempted to presume upon the grace of God? Say, well, I've got this freedom in Christ. What, what, what's the big deal? We, we, can, we can do a little bit of this or that. Um, I know He'll forgive me. You been there? I know I can just repent of this later. Um, the big deal is actually considering if this action, if this decision is putting sin to death or encouraging it in your life. Will this draw you closer to Christ? self Denial, or is this more self-absorption that we're calling freedom in Jesus? Is this decision, is this action a way for me to love my brother or sister, or am I putting a stumbling block to their faith in front of them? Our freedom in Jesus is defined not by doing whatever it is we please, but by doing that which pleases God. Let me say that again. That's probably the, the point here. Freedom in Christ is not doing whatever it is we please. It's doing what pleases God. So as Christians, we've been saved from sin, from the sensuality that we're seeing here from certain people, and to sanctification. We've been saved to obedience and the freedom that that gives to us. I love this quote by John Calvin, just to give a simple picture here. He says, it's bad to live under a prince who permits nothing, but much worse to live under one who permits everything. Bad to live under a prince who permits nothing, but much worse to live under one who permits everything. You know, I'm not sure we could describe our time uh, any better than what Jude does here. Um, what he's seeing here. And it's just going to pile on the examples that call out the ungodly and what's in store for them. So even though Jude didn't get to write what he intended to write, he reminds us that we're united by a common salvation in God's grace. He gives us His Word, the truth, the ability to believe. So we don't need some, some new, fresh revelation from God. We need a fresh understanding and application 
of the revelation that's been handed down, that's been entrusted to us in the Scriptures. So by this contending for the faith, I mean, we're actually helping to recover rightful authority. We're showing our love. We're showing our gratitude to Christ. We're showing that He is our Lord and our Master as we contend. So may we be those people who contend for the faith. Let's pray together. Father, that is our desire. That united to Christ, we would be those who contend for the faith. That we would hear this appeal, Lord. Um, desire to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and the word that you've given to us. Lord, we praise you for this word, this faith entrusted one generation to the next. And Lord, it's not just the knowledge, we know this, but in applying it and living it out. Lord, guard our hearts. Forgive us we presume upon Your grace. May we be those who truly grasp the love that You have shown us. Truly grasp the mercy that You have shown us. That we would desire nothing less than to walk with You faithfully. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.